Hi, and welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boitler. We wanted to stretch our wings here a bit this week, since we're right in the heart of summer blockbuster season, and talk about what's happened to movies over the past, say, 15 or 20 years. Uh, As you know, we prep for these shows to be about unwelcome trends in our politics and culture and everything in between. And it's a constant challenge not to fall into the sort of get-off-my-lawn trap. Certain things seem to be trending in an unfortunate direction, but that doesn't mean the best thing would be to go back to the way things were when I was a teenager or a young adult and everything seemed great. Because, one, that's definitely not the case. And two, there's no challenge there, right? If you take a wrong turn along the way, it doesn't necessarily make sense to retrace your steps all the way back and start over. So I don't just want to complain that movies were better in my day. Uh, Why can't we make movies like the ones I grew up with? But I do think that somewhere along the line, the pressures shaping filmmaking from the pandemic to technology to copyright to just straight up profit motive kind of balkanized movies. They steered budgets towards comic book movies and reboots, and we lost a broad middle of movies that weren't necessarily big-budget blockbusters and weren't necessarily highbrow cinema, but were shared cultural artifacts that most people had some relationship with. And I get the sense, though maybe I'm wrong, that most consumers of any generation do not prefer it this way. I don't know exactly when this disjuncture began, but in my mind, it's the early to mid-aughts. There's the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire, obviously. But beyond the comic book realm, Hollywood rebooted James Bond with Casino Royale and Batman with Batman Begins. And I really loved both of those films. I still watch them whenever I happen upon them. And I remember thinking, wow, these directors and actors really rescued these franchises. And maybe we're going to begin to take the best aspects of character-driven hit dramas and infuse them into our big studio blockbusters, and everything will just level up a bit. Looking back now 15 or 20 years later, that seems clearly wrong. And again, it's not that movies are bad now. I've seen tons and tons of great ones since then. Some of my favorites. But they've grown increasingly niche. They're movies for people, not movies that you gotta see because everyone's talking about them. Anyhow, what really got me thinking about all this was Maverick, the new Top Gun movie, and some of the critical discourse around it. And you know, in some ways, Maverick bears all the hallmarks of new big-budget cinema. It's a sequel. It's like a huge billboard for the military-industrial complex. It also does this weird thing where we're supposed to be at war with a technologically superior enemy, but we can't name the enemy because the only possible country that could be is China. And we can't say that Because think of all the money we'd lose if China banned Maverick. But despite all that, I loved it. I saw it twice in two weeks in the theaters, something I used to do all the time but haven't done in years. And I noticed it's become a cultural touchstone for all kinds of Americans, as though the last two decades never happened. And it made me think we can rekindle not movies per se, but movie going as a thing we do as members of a single society. So I wanted to talk to someone who's watched the evolution of mass cinema up close, who probably had a better sense than I do of how things have changed, why things have changed, what role movies have played over the years in giving Americans a common culture, and whether a renaissance is possible or desirable. Jonathan Rosenbaum was the lead film critic for the Chicago Reader for more than two decades until 2008. He's written, I think it's correct to say, thousands of reviews 
and several books about movies. And at my suggestion, he went and saw Maverick this week, and I understand he also loved it. Though as I sit here recording this, I don't know why. So let's find out. Jonathan Rosenbaum, welcome to Positively Dreadful. Thank you. Uh, glad to be here. I hope you'll forgive the indulgent windup. Um, but before we get into movies and movie going, I wanted listeners to know a bit more about you. I think you, you grew up, I think, in northern Alabama. Is that right? Yes, northwestern Alabama, um, where my father and my, well, actually, my grandfather owned a chain of movie theaters in uh, four different towns, including three in my hometown that were within a block of each other. So it's like um, I grew up seeing practically all the releases of the, the mainstream releases of the 1950s. Um, and, you know, that's the, that was a very rich period, actually. I think the last, for me, the last really, for me, the last really great period of, of, of Hollywood filmmaking. Um, I, I, I don't, even though I've enjoyed films since then, I don't think there have been any pe period <laughs> as great as, you know, the 50s and some, and certain decades be before the 50s. But, um, in any case, I, I grew up there, but then I've, I've lived a lot of other places since then. I went away to boarding school in Vermont in 1959, and uh, you know, went to college in New York. Uh, moved to uh, after graduate school in Long Island. I went to I lived in Paris for five years, where I rediscovered the American cinema through a kind of a franchise in some ways. And then I lived in London. Then I moved back to the States and California. Finally, I wound up, then I moved back to the East Coast. Finally, I went back to the West Coast to teach. And then after that, I finally settled in Chicago, where I worked for the Chicago Reader, as you explained earlier. So this may be a dumb question, and apologies in advance if it is, but you're from Chicago. Siskel and Ebert were Chicago-based. Richard Roper is Chicago-based. I'm wondering how it is that Chicago became such a hub for movie criticism. Well, one thing that I think is significant is Chicago, unlike New York and unlike Los Angeles, is America. You know, it's almost <laughs> like I, th I think that New York and Los Angeles are almost like separate states or separate countries, you know. Um, but Chicago is very much like, as I say, America, uh, for better and for worse. Um, and it's a it's an easier place to live, I think, than those two than Los Angeles and New York in many ways. Um, I mean, I used to say in a kind of snobby way that I like living in Chicago because the main cultural activity is sports, and I have no interest in sports, so I can get a lot of work done actually while I'm here. <laughs> I mean, it is. Uh, I think it's fitting in some way because because. It's the biggest city that isn't New York or L.A. And at the so there's a media market there, but there's not a lot of movie production there. And it seems right in a sense that critics should have some distance, not just physical, but they shouldn't they should have some distance from their subjects. And it probably gets harder to maintain a level of objectivity about what you're criticizing if you're not mingling among the actors, directors, producers, et cetera, that make the product that you're. 
Well, I should add that I I should point out that I don't think objectivity is either possible nor nor is it desirable. I think I believe in subjectivity, but I like to objectify my subjectivity, which is to say, uh, I feel the role of a critic is not to evaluate, but to intervene in a public discussion that starts before the critic comes along and continues after the critic leaves. So if the critic is doing a good job, she or he is improving the options of the discussion in certain ways. Um, and that's what I try to do. Um, but that, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that that gets harder if you're doing that by day and then by night having dinner or cocktails or whatever with the people who make the, 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 the thing that is the subject or object of your criticism? Well, it can, but not necessarily. I think as long as one objectifies one's subjectivity. And so in other words, if people know where your ideas are and opinions are coming from, um, I think that puts everybody on the same playing field, um, which, so I don't find it, even though it's true, I have friends who are filmmakers and I write about their films, you know, and I can't say it's never, I've never had any problems with that. Nevertheless, I don't think, I don't consider it a major problem. Um, I consider film going is social. It's always been social. And even if one watches things on one's laptop, it's social because the difference now is when I used to see movies that I really liked a lot, like in New York, for example, sometimes weeks would go by before I'd meet somebody else who saw the same movie and we could talk about it. Whereas now you're already in dialogue with people on the internet about it before you see the film, after you see the film. And, you know, I have a website that gets used to have about a thousand people a day visiting. Now it's closer to 800 since the uh, COVID thing. But it's but even so, I feel like it's very international, too. And most of the people who come to my site are younger people, not people my own, my 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 age. You know, I'm 79. But the people who go to my site tend to be in their 20s and 30s. And uh, and I'm in dialogue with a lot of them all the time, um, which I find very satisfying. And in fact, more focused a kind of relationship to my audience than I had when I was writing for the Chicago Reader in many ways. Um, That's interesting that you uh, you're coming at it from this per- perspective of somebody who's who thinks that the transition to the sort of digital interactive criticism leaves us in a better place maybe than in the more gate gatekeeper driven criticism world of the pre-internet era when you had a handful of established critics who sort of created the dialogue about movies and what made them good and bad. Yeah, I think, well, it's, it's better in a lot of ways. If you think about what the options are, for example, on cable, because right now, for example, if you go to Netflix, you're seeing, you know, miniseries and films from all over the world now, which was not the case, you know, before. The only period when you had uh, a very a kind of a mass audience, close to, something closer to a mass audience for international cinema, was after the uh, divestiture, you know, that happened uh, in the '50s, which affected my own family's business. So that for a certain period. You know, when theaters had to become independent, including my own family's business, uh, you had all these art cinemas, you know, a thousand in the United States back then. 
And, you know, that's during the period of Italian neorealism when that, when those were, m- movies were actually making money and people were going to see them. And now you're getting what I find really interesting is a much more diversified choice. The problem that people face now is that there are too many choices uh, so that they need lists. And I'm one thing that's, that's helped me because the most popular things that I've published, even in the Chicago Reader, are things involving, like when I, I, gave, I gave an alternative list to the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest American films. And I, I came up with an, another list that was of 100 other films, which I thought were better than the ones on the, many of those on their list. Uh, and that became very popular. So I think that the, the, the people, you know, in some ways it's a more reactionary period because when you when you have too many choices, you go much more with with what, you, you know, the movies that have million dollar ad campaigns. And that's not necessarily because people prefer those. It's because it's the only ones they hear about because they the, you know, that they they stick to those sort of like um, mainstream channels in which, you know, films like Top Gun Maverick are, you know, the only films you hear about, practically. Uh, but that doesn't mean there aren't other films around and that people are actually watching them and enjoying them. The difference for me is is that my audience is, is international now. It's not a strictly an American audience, although over half of the people who come to my website are Americans. Um, I hope that's clear. So let's get... Uh, it yeah. is. It makes sense. It actually... It, it, I'm glad that you have this perspective that differs from how I introduced this, because I'm wondering what you, you, as you listen to me, uh, drone on in that windup, uh, what you thought about it, what, what, what you thought I got right and what you thought I got wrong. Well, I do think that the, um, I do, I do think that what you're saying is partly right, but it's, but it, you know, I think we're, we're all based on our generation. You know, my generation is an, is it, is an older one than your generation. Uh, and um, so I see as a kind of, you know, what a lot of people talk about is a certain golden age in mainstream movie going. Uh, I see it as the 50s. You see it more probably like the 70s, 80s or 90s, you know. Um, but and I know an awful lot of people think the greatest period with the 70s, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I, the funny thing about it is when one is reviewing movies. One of the requirements of the job, which I found, which is the reason why I retired when I did, the reader didn't want me to retire at the time that I did, is that you have to make whatever you're writing about, good or bad, seem important, and then you're supposed to forget about it. It's the same way movie going is supposed to go. You know, the, in other words, it's a totally immersive experience when you're watching it, and then you're supposed to forget about it to make room for the next movie, you know, and I'm, I, you know, my belief, if I have a motto, it's the title of a book that I'm trying to find a publisher for. It's called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. And uh, one reason why I haven't been able to find a publisher is that that goes against the grain of what the mainstream wisdom is about how you're supposed to respond to movies. You're, you're supposed to get about them after, after you see them. They're not supposed to change your life, you know. Um, and what I find so fascinating, even though I really enjoyed Top Gun Maverick, it's to me, it's a film, if you put all the pieces together, it has many of the same 
elements that I find in Star Wars, which is really what makes mass murder attractive. You know, it's like uh, it's it's and in fact, it, it really explains. I mean, one of the things that fascinated me is I took down the, uh, the name of all the different characters, nicks, nicknames. And let me just reel them off because they really give you a whole sense of the American ethos. I mean, OK, you've got Maverick, you've got Rooster. You've got Iceman, Hondo, Cyclone, Warlock, Phoenix for the only you know woman in the team, Bob, Payback, which is like uh, that's pure Tarantino, right? Payback, and he's a one-trick <laughs> pony who only deals with revenge. You know, you've got Fanboy, Hangman, Omaha, and Coyote. Now, I mean, you put those all together, and you're getting exactly what the kind of mythology of the people who do mass murder. You know. And, you know, and as you, well, one thing that you're absolutely right about in your thing is that, you know, it's not even, first of all, it's not even clarified what country they're bombing. It's also not clarified if they're killing people or not killing people or if they're just destroying weapons. I mean, it's made to seem so remote because it's, you know, this cold, icy, you know, that, that it, whether you're killing people or you're just killing equipment, it's not even clear. And, you know, even the title Top Gun is already sort of giving you the ethos of the people who commit mass murder. I mean, you know, they're the top guns, you know. And one of the interesting arguments that goes on in the film is whether it's better to think or better to act on instinct. And one thing I like about the film is that it, contra it literally contradicts itself in a kind of a knowing way, because first it's basically... You know, the Tom Cruise Maverick character is saying you have you can't think you have to just sort of like do. And uh, but then on the other hand, his life gets saved by because of someone who thinks. So like most of the successful mass market movies, it works both sides of the street. You know, it's basically saying, yeah, you're supposed to depend on instinct, but it helps if you think also, but not think too much, because this is not a movie about thinking, really. Um, <laughs> no, definitely not. It definitely is not. It's a, it's very exhilarating, though. Oh, I know. It's so taut. And it, and also, and it, there's a kind of uh, engine power that is sort of like, that runs through the whole film and makes it exhilarating. It's also very impressive, technically, as a kind of, as a stunt. I mean, I was looking at the credits on Internet Movie Database, and, you know, there are 46 people credited for makeup and hair. That's kind of extraordinary if you think about it. 46 people, um, seven writers, you know, on the film, 11 producers. I mean, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's a whole, you know, enormous team putting together that it's, which is in effect a war machine. Um, and that's what we're supposed to be exhilarated by, as in Star Wars, you know. I blame Star Wars to some extent for the Gulf. I mean, I think the Gulf Wars might not have happened in the same way if it hadn't been for Star Wars, because Star Wars convinced people that, you know, you could wipe out entire civilizations. And it's just like a video game. There's no blood. There's um, it's just, you know, it's exhilarating. And, so th uh, this is something that you this is something you mentioned to me on the phone and I was going to ask you about it. I was going to do it later in the conversation, but let's just fast forward. I, I, I want to know why you like Maverick, because what you said to me when we when we spoke earlier, uh, 
is that you have this critical antipathy to Star Wars because it leaves viewers with the impression you were just talking about, that we can destroy whole civilizations without bloodshed or remorse. And actually, that's like the happy ending when you do that. And Top Gun has that same kind of harmless triumph of the defiant underdogs quality to it. So why? how do you square that? What makes... Well, I mean, good I think, in spite I think of that the ethos? overall project is very disturbing. But I mean, what I'm saying is, when people, <laughs> no, no, listen. When people, when no, people, I, see, I mean, when people see Star Wars, or they see, uh, in other words, it's move big budget movies like this are designed to keep us innocent. You know, even mm-hmm. in a, if you take another word, mass market movie that I have a real animus against, which is the Godfather films. I mean, this is a film that says. Corruption is inescapable. We can't do anything about it. So it's Shakespearean. It's, you know, it's like suddenly it becomes very noble. When it's not noble at all, it's very cowardly. It's completely a defeatist view of, of humanity. Um, and, and that, but that's what's very popular. I mean, the reason why Citizen Kane is the most popular film of, of Orson Welles is because it's of its own corruption, you know, thanks to, Herman Mankiewicz, you know, and whereas the other Orson Welles films are all about innocence and uh, people don't like to be faced with their own innocence. I mean, this is a film that is trying to develop our innocence about mass murder, you know, and uh, yeah, I can get into it. But then I, I, the inside, what makes me like it is it tells me how easy it is to become a mass murderer. Um, and how and how uh, exhilarating it can be. In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt is a podcast from Lemonada Media that operates under the premise that the most comforting thing for all of us is knowing what and what not to worry about. It's been a source of nonpartisan and clear information for millions through the pandemic. Host and former White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response, Andy Slavitt, is here to help you make sense of tough issues, from COVID to the crisis in Ukraine to climate change and beyond. Andy breaks down the most complex news stories of today in a way that is easy to understand and gives you the info you need to keep you and your family safe and informed. Named one of the top podcasts of the year by Vanity Fair and many more, In the Bubble has new episodes out Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to In the Bubble with Andy Slavitt wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm I'm the target audience for this movie in a number of ways, but my my, my demographic and um, the you know, I just as a person have always liked sort of edge of your seat action and thriller movies. So I don't think it's like a, a big surprise that. I thought that the movie worked on those levels. Um, uh, beyond that, though, um, there's this nostalgic quality of revisiting the original 30 years later. Um, I have so to add it, that it, I have it, not seen, I have to add that I have not seen and don't have any particular plans to see the original Top Gun. Um, you've never seen it? It, ha- it, came, it came out It came out in 1986, which was the year before I started at the Chicago Reader. So I didn't have to see it. And because I didn't have to see it, I didn't want to see it, you know, and I still don't want to see it. You know, I don't feel like (laughs) it's going to teach me anything new. Uh, Whereas I felt that, you know, that because of the popularity of this, of the sequel, I was very curious about it. 
and it satisfied my curiosity. But the other thing I have to say, and this is a weird thing about demographics, too, is that I happened to see Top Gun Maverick in a theater where I was the only person in the audience. That was the the case when I saw it the second time, yeah. Uh, And I I think I'm an experienced enough moviegoer, and I, I can understand if I was seeing it in a, you know, an auditorium full of people and they were all digging it the way I was, or maybe not exactly the way I was, but still digging it. Uh, I could sort of, I could sort of, you know, get a sense of that even without the people there. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that that that's like a powerful indicator of, of a movie's appeal that you're not getting swept up in the emotions of people around you, but you can sort of come to your own conclusions about it. And if it can hold you without, you know, reference to how other people are responding to it, then it's speaking to something inside you that says you like it and it's good. Yeah, I should mention the only review I've read of the film was one that I just read last night by Michael Wood in London Review of Books, in which he says, world politics are absent. Um, and I thought that was, you know, that, that that was the only thing in the review I found interesting, actually. But uh, But I think because I mean, it's I mean, he's a little disturbed about the fact about that aspect. But of course, that's what makes it work as a mass market entertainment, that innocence, you know, um, that that the only world that matters is the world of the other team players. And that's the way, in other words, so we have this paradoxical situation now. On the one hand, America believes itself all alone in the world, that there's nothing else that's important that in fact, everybody else in the world either is American or hates America or wants to be American, but there are no other alternatives. The idea that they, you know, you could want to be something other than American doesn't even occur to most Americans. Um, So it's, I think there's a certain type of, so you get that kind of uh, way in which America is in many ways, despite other indications now of changes, more isolationist than it was during the Cold War. Um, And you can even see that in the kind of cliches you get in movies. You know, it used to be in the 50s, for example, whenever you had a Russian character, it would be someone who would take off their shoe and hit it on the table like Khrushchev did, you know. So in other words, it was a, there was a cliched idea about what Russia was. But if you go to see, you know, global disaster movies now, they haven't, they haven't moved from that, they don't have any ideas. People in America still think the French love Jerry Lewis. They don't know that the, that was true only back in the 50s and 60s. And since then, Woody Allen is vastly more popular in France than Jerry Lewis, um, for instance. So America, the point is America doesn't keep up with the rest of the world. And yet, at the same time, we're getting all these foreign miniseries and stuff on cable, we're getting uh, all this interest in Ukraine right now. So it seems to me that there is a change in awareness of what's happening in the rest of the world, partly because of COVID, actually. It's, so in other words, it's, it's, it's opposite things going on at the same time. And I find that really, really kind of interesting. This is, a very, this is very much a nostalgic movie because it's really about the fact goes back to the idea that America is the only country in the world. I think it's also nostalgic about movies. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to anchor our conversation around this one 
yeah. random action movie is that, you know, even if you, it, it's actually fine that you haven't seen the original because yes, they, you know, they are definitely gunning for fans of the original Top Gun to come see this movie and bring back, you know, the characters from that, uh, from that movie and place us back in, you know, our, our younger days. Well, it's interesting too. One thing I was very touched by and it won me over is the fact that Tom Cruise gives a personal introduction to the film at the beginning. Yes, you know? that's where I was that's what I was gonna say. Is is he saying he starts the movie not with the with the iconic music, but with this direct to audience message. Thank you for coming to the theater to see this movie. And it is a movie that's sort of about, you know, the um the like the last generation's heroes um like th their way of doing things is better right um that the that the new ways that we're doing things are inferior um that that for instance that war fighting and the quality of the pilot in the plane is inherently superior uh to the new way of of fighting where algorithms in airplanes fight other algorithms in other airplanes um but i i got the sense that he was saying the same thing about about movie making that um, that the way that the era of the uh, movie megastar that makes all kinds of movies that draw people by the millions to the theaters and then everyone talks about those things is on the decline, but he thinks it's better. If you had to boil down Top Gun Maverick in one sentence, you know, that sums it up, I would I would say it's Trump's uh, motto. Make America great again, <laughs> and that's it's, the it's same kind of, motto as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, of Tarantino, why everybody loves yeah. it. It's it's the same idea, which is still America is the only country in the world, and uh, let's make it great again. Um, and that's what's really kind of uh, you know so paradoxical about it, because what I'm saying is it not only translates into the exhilaration of mass murder or the potential exhilaration of mass murder, but it's also, you know, becomes a Trumpian movie. I mean, you know, it's, um, it's, it seems to me that, uh, in other words, that the only community that exists really is the community of people who are committing mass murder um, and are able to. You know, sort of like so. It's a, it's a kind of worship of power, the power of that machinery. Even if you, even if you're not sort of like you know, you're trusting your instincts rather than you're trusting you know algorithms. It's still about you know, it's like sports too. It's team spirit and all of that. Um, it's all very disturbing, but I think I, but I like it because it's great. Uh, food for thought if you're trying to figure out what's so screwed up about this country right now you know i think <laughs> you're getting a, you're getting a really good um image that you can start looking at and analyzing you know and and analyze the parts of it that are not because whenever we talk about mass murder it's always them it's not us you know and i think we have to see it as being about us it's i mean it, uh, <laughs> It's funny because I, I, I can't think off the top of my head of, of some way to refute your criticism, but I don't think that that's what the audience for this movie is thinking about when they respond to it positively. And that that audience spans the gamut. I mean, it's people who are left wing and, and liberal and 
But the whole idea of, of a movie like this is that going to the movies and having a great group experience is, by, is returning to the innocence of childhood. You know, so it's another way. This is a boy's movie. Even if mm-hmm. you've got it, what, you know, like uh, if it's very politically correct with the right number of, you know, like non-white characters and you've got a, a woman who's one of the pilots and so on. It's still about returning to our innocence. And that's what movies are supposed to be, according to this. And therefore, but for that reason, you know, we can learn a lot from it. And, you know, so yeah. I like, I kind of like, we're, as I say, I'm working both sides of the street. I'm trying, I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it as a innocent boy watching, you know, returning to his childhood. And, and as a grown up analyst trying to see why we're so fucked up, you know? <laughs> so uh, the fact that Tom Cruise begins with this fa- this hearty, heartfelt Thanksgiving for the people who who showed up, I think suggests that he 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 mourns the the loss of what used to be more common, which was for people to do what he wants them to do: go to the movies, have a great time, have movies bring people together. Um, and so I. And forget about about it afterwards. That's the other thing. It's you see, that's what's part of it. It's as a critic, you see, one of the things that I found so debilitating for doing this for twenty years is that you have to see a lot of movies you don't want to see, but you have to also make them seem important. And then Mm -hmm. you're supposed to, and then you have to forget about it in order to make room for the next movie that's supposed to seem important a week later. You know, it's like it's it's all about amnesia as well as you know, a fully immersive experience while it's happening. And it's the same way America deals with its own history. I mean, you know, a certain war becomes all important and then you forget about it. You forget about the victims. You forget about what you, you know, what happened. You forget about what mistakes you might've been made and you go on to the next war or the next mass killing, you know, or whatever it is that's going to fill up the news that day. Um, So I, 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 I thought, to myself in preparation for this and responding to to that introduction of the movie um you know what explains uh how that entered decline and you know or or stopped being the norm around around cinema and movie making um why people stopped thinking like weekend at the movie is the way to to see movies well my the idea of targeting see when i was going to movies in the 50s it was movies were for everybody and so there would be something in the movie for everybody, you know, from all age groups, all economic groups, uh, et cetera. Then if they, they decided, you know, it's much better. You see, then you suddenly got uh, with Reagan, everything changed because there's a different economic model that came with Reagan, which was that you take an existing market and you drill it into the ground to exhaust it. You don't start a new market. You go back to the old market. And so when targeting, they decided that the ideal audience for movies was, you know, 10-year-old boys. And uh, it's no longer everybody, but 10-year-old boys. And and the point is, is that in a paradoxical sort of way, Top Gun Maverick is a movie both for 10-year-old boys and for everybody, because everybody wants to be a 10-year-old boy. Um, <laughs> That, anyway, that's, that actually that's accords my, with, with that. Okay, that accords with one of my hypotheses uh, that I'll that I'll I'll go in reverse order. That uh, so I mentioned Siskel and Ebert earlier, Ebert and Roper. After that, um, 
and I, I could be making a sort of propter hoc mistake, um, but the, the decreasing prominence of these critical validators who everyone knows, right? Everyone knows Siskel and Ebert, um, to using uh, user-driven tools like Rotten Tomatoes, that started to happen, I think, before the shift in, in movies. And so, I mean, if you're a, if you're a studio exec, um, and, uh, you know, the, the first Spider-Man movie, uh, comes out with Tobey Maguire. It, it made over $800 million worldwide. It has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. At the same time, Roger Ebert gave it 2.5 stars, which is like hardly a rave review. Um, so if I'm in the movie making business, who am I going to listen to about what kind of projects to support? Am I going to listen to Roger Ebert just because he's famous or am I going to listen to the, to the thousands of, of uh, viewers who, you know, tell the internet, I love this movie and there are a lot more people like me because look at how much money it's making. Well, but you have to remember, this is a very important consideration. Back in the fifties, nobody knew what the box office receipts were, you know, of, of they knew that some movies were more successful at the box office than others. But the whole idea of listing the top box office grocers is it is a later development and it became to me it was always something obscene about it because why should we be interested in how much money you know stupid billionaires are making i mean who cares you know it's like uh what but, but that became the main thing and then after all there was a certain kind of way in which publicity is running the show. I mean, you're spending it, at a certain point, people started spending as much or more money on the publicity as they did even on making the movie. And that became what was important, you know, but when people used to write to me sometimes at the reader and say, why are you always writing about films I've never heard of? I would always reply, what you mean is, by films I've never heard of or films that don't have multi-million dollar ad campaigns. That's all. And the point is why we should even be interested in how much money a film is making is, is, is kind of questionable because, you know, that if everybody knew exactly what made money and, you know, then it would be, it wouldn't be a, you know, it's voodoo science really, because there are plenty of times that they spend all this money on movies and they flop, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a science. It's guesswork. And the whole thing of, of the box office champs is, you know, and, and running and, and being aware of how much money a movie makes and all of that is really just sort of like gratifying to the egos of the people who are putting up the money. But it has nothing to do with our own lives. You know, I don't think uh, I think it's sort of like uh, giving the last word to the publicists, the first and the last word. The whole idea of thumbs up and thumbs down is, is that critics should have the first and last word. I don't believe that. I believe the critics should intervene in the middle of a discussion. But okay, so so uh, perhaps the it, the the disempowering of of sort of famous critics um, doesn't explain it. But it it is true that you know I I think it's true. I haven't I haven't studied it scientifically, but you know in in the up through the 1990s and maybe even a little bit into the 2000s there was there were these like uh middle to highbrow comedy movies and drama movies um that despite not being big blockbuster movies but also despite not being um like highly acclaimed cinematic masterpieces did really well at the box office right like i'm going yes. to pull movies 
out of, you know, out of my head, but like the, as good as it gets or the Truman show or, uh, the firm, another Tom Cruise movie, right? Yeah, I, I gave four stars, which embarrasses me now to as good as it gets because I'm a big James, <laughs> James, James L. Brooks fan. And it, uh, contrary to most of my colleagues, you know, I think he's a really great filmmaker. Uh, but I, I guess the point I, I'm, try, I'm trying to make is, is that back in, back in the 50s, it was a very different ball game because it was really about I felt it was kind of like going to movies was like being at a town hall meeting, you know, because mm-hmm. I grew up in a small town, um, you know, 30,000 people. And it was right next to a couple of other towns that were smaller. But, you know, so if you had the whole community of that, those three towns, it was like 60,000 maybe. But it was still a kind of way in which you were participating in your community, whereas now targeting has made that impossible in certain ways it's basically subdividing the audience subdividing the markets that whatever the market is in america is supposed to be different from what the market is overseas and you know and right. sort of like and, I, and and my whole career is direct towards confounding that and trying to work towards a world what i see is a world community and uh and i think that it, there is a world community at least one that i experience from my website Okay, here's my here's my my other hypothesis, um, yeah. and then we'll try to try to sum up. Um, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but um, a, a newish pastime, I think mostly for people my age and younger, uh, is is streaming some usually mediocre movie on Netflix or another service, and kind of half paying attention, half watching it, while at the same time scrolling on our phones. Um, I do that all the time. I've wasted countless hours of my life doing that. And I I wonder if part of the dwindling of movie culture is maybe in part a consequence of people having um, low tolerance for two hours of withdrawal from social media. Like they're so addicted to Facebook or whatever they're doing on their phone that they don't want to put it away for two hours to sit through a movie that, you know, th- the rules say you got to keep your phone off. <laughs> No, absolutely. I think it's there's a book that impressed me a lot this year called Stolen Focus, which is really about what the Internet and, and social media have done to us. And it's what the perfect illustration of, of the new situation is how many of phone numbers you remember now, whereas back in the, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid, you, you remember that you knew the phone numbers of all your friends, you know. And now mm-hmm. you don't know them anymore. You don't remember them anymore because the computer does that for you. And does, does yep. this make us into better people? No, it makes us into weaker people with with reduced attention spans. You know, and I think that it's that that's something that that we're the pawns of you know uh, the economic interests basically, which is which you know ties in with the targeting idea again. It's, you know, it's sort of like, basically, we're the products that are being sold, actually. Not the movies, but but us. Okay, so given everything we've discussed and all the forces, economic and technological targeting, as you mentioned, our, our own bad habits of social media, all these pressures that have taken away from the sort of paradigmatic movie uh, that appeals to our sort of innocence and uh, draws people from all walks of life to the same movie and we all have a good time. 
Uh, can there be a movie going renaissance or renaissance of that uh, paradigm? Um, and should we want there to be? Well, it seems to me the kind of movies that I feel, you know, the past that I feel nostalgic about, even if I didn't experience them as a kid, would be something like The Best Years of Our Lives. Because that's a film that really spoke to, I think, uh, virtually everyone in America about what the experience of the war and its aftermath was. And um, in a very grown-up way, I think, actually. That it wasn't just about innocence. It was about grappling with grown-up problems. Um, and that was a film that was as recognized, you know, critically and popular in a popular way as, you, as you know, one could wish. Um, I think whether we can get a film like that now is, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't like to predict the future because I think that there, uh, we're constantly contradicted by, you know, the evidence of new movies that come along that do things that we didn't think were possible. But, uh, but you know, my favorite movies as a kid were westerns and musicals. And it seems to me that even a film like, um, like you know, Top Gun Maverick has elements of both westerns and musicals in them, you know, in terms of what it's doing. Um, so I think that, that certain things from the past do survive in some form or another. But it's... Um, but I think that the idea of appealing to us as grown-ups is something that we are likely to experience on cable than we're likely to experience in a movie house. But that's because of the way the business works. So the real villain in my story isn't any of the things we spend a lot of time talking about, but it's these serial dramas that I also really like um, that are drawing on our on our screen time budgets and then we decide we we don't have as much time or need for movies as we used to well yeah i mean the best mini series that i've seen in the past two or three years is um crazy ex-girlfriend which you could see on netflix <laughs> which i have you seen any of that i haven't i haven't but i'm gonna now oh yeah it's amazing and it's really uh, to me it actually tells tells us why we're screwed up it's it, it see most sitcoms are based on the idea that people never change but in this in this series crazy ex-girlfriend the characters actually change and learn from their mistakes and things like this and it's a com it's a musical comedy there are musical numbers in every single episode and uh and it's really about self-deception uh and the self-deception that we practice on ourselves so i think it's I think there are ways that you can actually have grown-up entertainments, but it's not going to happen in movie houses because that's not the way the business works now. Uh, but it can work; it can operate that way. I think, as I say, on cable, because I believe in the future of niche markets. If you start talking about what changes history, movies that change history, we're talking about small groups of people. In other words, when when people say the 60s were a great period and, you know, sort of like the French New Wave and the 40s was a great period because of Italian neorealism, we're really talking about a small group of friends who sat together at cafes and had ideas in common. And that's what changed history. By the time it became absorbed by the mainstream, these people were gone on to other things, you know? So it's like we catch, the mainstream catches up with niche markets years later 
But it seems to me that if you want to change history in an art form, you're talking about niche markets. If you want to sort of like make a lot of money, if that becomes your main interest, then you have to talk about, you know, then it becomes essential to talk about Top Gun Maverick and not about niche markets. <laughs> I feel like that's an indictment of me a little bit for wanting for wanting the... Well, um... <laughs> well, but me, but, too, but me too, because I wanted to see it and I'm glad I saw it, you know, so it's not, I'm not trying to sort of like say, I'm good and you're bad, you know, I'm not trying to say that. I'm trying to say we're all in this together. Is it an inherent, is it an inherent good for a, a society or this country or any other to have a common language around movies, you know, that every week or two or three weeks, something hits in the theaters and suddenly everyone's talking about it. And, and this is the thing that draws us closer with our coworkers or family members who we would otherwise be fighting with about politics um, well, or whatever else. But, well, except that it depends on what we do with it. I mean, you see one thing that kind of fascinates me, I'm, I'm still fascinated by a figure like Jerry Lewis of, who's hated in America, but people don't even remember when they say the French love Jerry Lewis they, they forget the fact that Jerry Lewis was so big in America that he was making three films a year. And that's what the only reason why the French, a, a, a small group of French intellectuals like Jerry Lewis at a certain period was because he was so big in America. They wouldn't have heard of him otherwise. So America are in complete denial about the fact that Americans really love Jerry Lewis. They don't even remember that. They don't, they're in denial about it. But it was true. You know, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that there's a certain kind of way in which there's a grown up way of responding to this group activity. And then there's a childish way of responding to it. And I think we have that that's what becomes to me of a large part of the issue. It's not to, to just say it's good that we all feel something together is only the first part of, you know, I think the issue. I think it's what we do with it once we have that ex group experience. I think that's a good note to end it on. Um, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, I'm glad you like Top Gun Maverick. I'm glad I didn't accidentally send you to see a movie that you hated. Um, and I really appreciate all of your insight on this topic. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Part of the fun of that conversation, for me at least, was that I had no idea what he was going to say other than that bit about how bad Star Wars was for geopolitics. And so I got hit with a totally different perspective than I was expecting. But he's watched movies change more than once in his long career. And I think his sense is, one, the reports of the death of movie culture are premature. They could come back. And two, what we're experiencing now is less the death of a common culture than a migration of that culture out of movie theaters and into living rooms, away from movies and towards series. And since we have no idea if that'll last or what might replace it, what's the point in being fatalistic about it? If the new Top Gun is a metaphor for movies, then it's a story about how past golden ages can inspire future ones. And it just cleared $600 million at the domestic box office. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez, and our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasily Fotopoulos.